When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Section 22 of The Story of London. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Paul Lawley-Jones. The Story of London by Henry B. Wheatley Chapter 11 The Church and Education, Part 1 The influence of the Church during the medieval period was great. In London, the Dean and Chapter of St. Paul's, secular canons, held the first place after the Bishop. Then came other bodies of secular and regular canons followed by the monks and friars and officers of the hospitals, etc. Last in rank, but most esteemed by the people, came the rectors and vicars of the various parishes. Here was a large army of persons forming the officials of the church, and the buildings of the church occupied a very large portion of the city and of the land beyond its walls. Between the secular and the regular clergy a great feud always existed. During the Saxon period the number of religious houses was few, but a great increase occurred almost immediately after the conquest. Monasteries grew in number rapidly during the Norman period, but in time, the monks having grown rich and lazy, the need of a revival became evident. The great movement of evangelization which took place during the early Plantagenet period, when the friars came from Italy to England, caused a religious revolution. Poverty and humility were the great principles of the friars, but these were soon forgotten, and in the 14th and 15th centuries all the regulars became equally obnoxious to the reformers. Wycliffe and his followers preached against them, and writers with such different views as Langland and Chaucer had little but evil to say of them. Chaucer condemns monks and friars alike, and reserves his praise for the poor parish priest. We must first deal with the bishop and the secular clergy, and then consider the conditions relative to the establishment of the regulars, ending with a note on education in London during the Middle Ages. The Cathedral Church of St. Paul's is of great antiquity, and was established in the first period of Saxon Christianity. There have been three buildings on the same site, and the first was erected in the earliest years of the seventh century by Melitus, the missionary bishop, and Ethelbert, king of Kent. Although this church existed for nearly five centuries, no record whatever remains of it. Sir Gilbert Scott wrote, quote, I am not aware that we have any information as to the cathedral built by the companions of Augustine, Melitus and Justus, at London and Rochester. Curiously enough, there continues to this day at Rochester, and continued to the seventeenth century in our own St. Paul's, equally as at Canterbury, a crypt beneath the elevated sanctuary, 
no doubt the lineal successor and representative of those erected by the missionary bishops, in imitation of the great basilica at Rome, whence they had been sent to evangelize this distant region. End quote. Erkenwald, whose shrine stood at the back of the high altar in the oldest church, was the fourth bishop, A.D. 675-693, to and it was at his house in London that Archbishop Theodore, the organiser of the Church of England, was reconciled to Bishop Wilfred after their long estrangement. Elphun, or Alhunus, was Bishop of London in 1012, and performed the burial service over Elpha, or Alphage, Archbishop of Canterbury, who was murdered by the Danes and buried in St. Paul's. William, the chaplain of Edward the Confessor, was consecrated in 1051. He was driven from England with the other foreign prelates in the following year, but returned to his see and died in 1075. It was he who was addressed as William Bishop in William the Conqueror's charter to the citizens of London. The first church of St. Paul's was destroyed by fire at the end of the 11th century, but the exact time is not certain, as Matthew of Westminster and Roger of Wendover give conflicting dates for the rebuilding. There seems to be no doubt that the second cathedral was commenced by Bishop Morris, and as he was not consecrated until 1085, the date given by Dugdale, 1083, must be wrong. Probably the received date of 1087, the last year of William the Conqueror's reign, is more correct. Fire again did great damage in the year 1136, but the work of rebuilding proceeded slowly, and in 1221 the steeple was finished. The choir was rebuilt, and the whole building was nearly completed by 1283. Old St. Paul's was a very grand building which took a prominent position amongst the cathedrals of the country. It was longer than Winchester, and the height of the choir was the same as Westminster. That of the nave was rather less. The crowning glory of Old St. Paul's was its elegant spire, but the building itself had many beauties, the magnificent rose window at the east end of the Lady Chapel, with a beautiful seven-light window beneath, being among these. This grand building, therefore, standing on a hill in the most prominent position of the city, was, for several centuries, the great ornament of London, bringing in harmony all the picturesque elements of the medieval town. In the year 1314 the cross fell and the steeple of wood, being ruinous, was taken down and rebuilt with a new gilt ball. Many relics were found in the cross, which were replaced in the new cross, and the new pommel or ball was made of sufficient size to contain ten bushels of corn. A chronicle in Lambeth Palace Library contains an account of the solemn dedication of those relics, which is quoted by Canon Benham. Quote, On the tenth of the calends of June 1314, Gilbert, Bishop of London, dedicated altars, namely those of the Blessed Virgin Mary, of St. Thomas the Martyr, and of the Blessed Dunstan, in the new buildings of the Church of St. Paul, London. In the same year, the cross and the ball, with great part of the campanile of the Church of St. Paul, were taken down because they were decayed and dangerous, and a new cross, with a ball well gilt, was erected, and many relics of diverse saints were, for the protection of the aforesaid campanile, and of the whole structure beneath, placed within the cross, with a great procession, and with due solemnity, by Gilbert the bishop, on the fourth of the nones of October, in order that the omnipotent God, 
and the glorious merits of his saints, whose relics are contained within the cross, might deign to protect from all danger of storms. End quote. In 1444, the spire was nearly destroyed by lightning and was not repaired until 1462. In the severe fire of 1561, the spire was destroyed and never rebuilt, although the rest of the cathedral was restored in 1566. The great height of the steeple gave point to many a proverb, and in Lodge's Wounds of Civil War, 1594, a clown talks of the, quote, Paul's Steeple of Honour, End quote, meaning by that phrase the highest point that could be attained. The choristers ascended the spire to a great height on certain saints' days and chanted prayers and anthems, a custom still observed in the tower of Magdalen College, Oxford, on May Day. The last observance of the custom at St. Paul's is said to have taken place in the reign of Mary I. The western front was originally a plain Norman façade of great size, which was flanked by two strong stone towers. The one on the north was connected with the bishop's palace, while that on the south was called the Lollard's Tower, and was used as the bishop's prison, quote, for such as were detected for opinions in religion contrary to the faith of the church, end quote. Stowe's Survey Footnote In 1633, Inigo Jones designed, at the expense of Charles I, a classic portico of some beauty in itself, but quite incongruous to the Gothic design of the rest of the building. The king, however, is said to have intended to rebuild the church, and of this scheme the portico was an instalment, but political events effectually prevented this from being carried out. After the restoration, but before the fire of London, it was proposed to rebuild the cathedral in the style of the Renaissance, under the direction of Wren who had no more liking for Gothic than Inigo Jones had. End of footnote. St. Paul's churchyard was formerly an enclosure, and not a thoroughfare. The public route to Cheapside from Ludgate Hill passed up the Old Bailey and along Newgate Street. The cathedral close is thus described by the late Dr. Sparrow Simpson. Quote, the wall erected about 1109, and, by letters patent of Edward I, greatly strengthened in 1285, extends from the northeast corner of Ave Maria Lane, runs eastward along Paternoster Row to the north end of Old Change in Cheapside, thence southward to Carter Lane, and on the north of Carter Lane to Creed Lane, back to the Great Western Gate. There are six entrances to the enclosure. The first is the Great Western Gate, by which we have just entered. The second, in Paul's Alley in Paternoster Row, leading to the postern gate of the cathedral, the third at Cannon Alley, the fourth, or Little Gate, where St. Paul's Churchyard and Cheapside now unite, the fifth, St. Augustine's Gate, at the west end of Watling Street, the sixth, at Paul's Chain. End quote. The Great Western Gate spanned the street towards the ends of Creed Lane and Ave Maria Lane. On entering the gate, the west front of the cathedral came in view, the old church of St. Gregory adjoined the main building at the southwest corner. It stood in the same position to the first cathedral, and within its walls the body of St. Edmund, king and martyr, was preserved for a time before it was carried to bury St. Edmund's for honourable burial. The early history of this church is lost, and it is not known whether it was destroyed with the first cathedral 
and rose again from its ashes like the second cathedral, or whether it continued for a time in its original state. It was pulled down before 1645 and not rebuilt. On the northern side of the nave of the cathedral stood the bishop's palace, a large and gloomy building. Still further to the north, past the palace and its grounds, was the cemetery called Pardon Church Hall. Here was a cloister painted with the subjects of the Danse Macabre, or Dance of Death, commonly known as the Dance of St. Paul's. John Lydgate translated out of French the old verses that explained these paintings. Over the east quadrant of the cloister was the Cathedral Library, built by Walter Sherrington, Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster in Henry VI's time, and Canon Residentiary. At one time the library was, quote, well furnished with fair written books in vellum, End quote. In the midst of the churchyard was a chapel, first founded by Gilbert, the father of Thomas Becket, and rebuilt by Dean Moore in the reign of Henry V. Nearby was Minor Canons Hall, and the College of Minor Canons, or Peter's College. The charnel house, with a chapel over it, stood at the northeast, not far from Paul's Cross. Footnote Paul's Cross was pulled down in 1642, but its site was long marked by a tall elm tree. This mark passed away and the exact position was forgotten. In 1879, however, Mr. F. C. Penrose found the remains of the octagonal base, which are now to be seen at the northeast angle of the choir of the present cathedral. End of footnote. This building existed in the reign of Edward I, and the chapel contains some monuments and alabaster figures. Among the historians of St. Paul's, there is some little confusion respecting these various chapels. Paul's cross holds a very prominent position in the history of the religious life of the Middle Ages, and for many years after. In ages when the voice of the people was largely inarticulate, the preacher has often been the man to make it heard. Stowe describes the cross as having, quote, been for many ages the most solemn place in this nation, for the greatest divines and most eminent scholars to preach at, end quote, and Carlyle calls it a kind of Times newspaper. It is worthy of remark that the position of Paul's cross was near the place where the ancient folk moots were held, and the former continued the traditions of the latter. At the east end of the cathedral was St. Paul's School, founded by Dean Collett, and the famous Bell Tower, formed of wood covered with lead, and containing the common bell, which called the people to their folk moots, and afterwards four bells, known as the Jesus Bells, because they specially belonged to Jesus Chapel, in the crypt of the cathedral. As the open space at the east end was claimed by the citizens as a place for their assemblies in folk moots, so the space at the west end was reserved for the military displays in connection with the appearance of Fitzwalter as bannerer of the city. On the south side of the close, and to the west of the transept, was the old octagonal chapter house, with its own two-storied cloister, built in 1332. This was a small but beautiful building. Footnote. During the Commonwealth it was proposed to turn the so-called Convocation House into a meeting place for Mr. John Simpson's congregation. A plan, dated 1657, in the Public Records Office, shows the remains of the pillars of the cloisters as they were then. End of footnote. Close by stood the house of the Chancellor. On the southwest is the deanery, 
first built by Ralph de Dicito, and more westward various houses for the use of the canons. On the south side of the cathedral also stood the dormitory, refectory, kitchen, bakehouse, and brewery of the college. The brew house became subsequently the Paul's Head Tavern. This brief list of the buildings in the old cathedral close will give some idea of the arrangement of the College of Secular Canons and the houses which they occupied. Having walked round the close, we may now enter the cathedral church at the western end, where were three gates or entries. The middle gate had a massive pillar of brass, to which the leaves of the great door were fastened. In the nave were twelve noble Norman bays with Norman triforium and pointed clerestory windows. It is probable that originally the roof of the nave was a flat painted ceiling, but Mr. Ferry supposes that a vaulted roof was added in 1255. Apparently, this was originally of wood, but that stone vaulting was intended may be inferred from the flying buttresses in some of the pictures of the cathedral. The view along the nave, as represented in Hollar's engraving, is very fine, and reminds one of the noble nave at Eli. Both the nave and the choir had twelve bays counting from the west door. The second bay of the north side contained the court of convocation, and close by was the font near which Sir John Montacute desired in his will, 1388, to be buried. Quote, if I die in London, then I desire that my body may be buried in St. Paul's, near to the font wherein I was baptised. In the tenth bay was the chantry chapel of Thomas Kemp, bishop of the diocese, 1448-1489, and rebuilder of Paul's Cross. In the eleventh bay, on the south side, was the tomb of Sir John Beauchamp, Knight of the Garter, died 1358, constable of Dover Castle, and son to Guy Beauchamp, Earl of Warwick. This tomb was commonly called after Duke Humphrey, and the nave of the church from this misnomer went by the name of Duke Humphrey's Walk. On May Day, watermen and tankard-bearers came to the tomb early in the morning, strewed herbs upon it, and sprinkled it with water. At the foot of this tomb was the image of the Virgin, before which a lamp was kept perpetually burning, and every morning after matins a short office was said before it. A taper was also kept burning before the great crucifix, near to the north door, fabulously said to have been discovered by King Lucius, A.D. 140. Richard Martin, Bishop of St. David's in the reign of Edward IV, had a special veneration for this crucifix, and left an annual gift to the choristers that they might sing before it, Sancte Deus Fortis. Footnote. The amount of the offerings in St. Paul's during the Middle Ages must have been enormous. For instance, the receipts at the Great Crucifix in May 1344 amounted to no less than fifty pounds in the money of that day. End of footnote. In the north aisle was the famous Sequis door, on which notices were fixed. Originally, these were probably purely ecclesiastical, but in course of time all classes made their wants known there. Decker writes, quote, the first time that you venture into St. Paul's, pass through the body of the church like a porter, yet presume not to fetch so much as one whole turn in the middle aisle, no, nor to cast an eye to Sequis' door, pasted and plastered up with serving men's supplications, before you have paid tribute to the top of Paul's steeple with a single penny. 
End quote. Bishop Hall, in his satires, shows that churchmen could be hired there too. Quote, Sawst thou ever sequis patched on Paul's church door, to seek some vacant vicarage before? End quote. This practice is alluded to by Chaucer. Quote, he set not his benefice to hire, and leet his sheep encumbered in the mire, and ran to London unto St. Paul's, to seeken him a chauntry for souls. Prologue to Canterbury Tales. End quote. Passing from the nave to the transept, we notice that the central tower was treated as a lantern internally, and was open to the base of the spire. The choir was cut off by a screen with a central archway. On each side of the entrance were four canopies with figures beneath them. An ascent of twelve steps took the worshipper to the level of the choir pavement. The choir was naturally the most gorgeous portion of the cathedral. The architecture was pure and noble, and the carved woodwork of the canon stalls was famous for its beauty. The reredos and high altar, dedicated in honour of St. Paul, formed the chief attraction of the choir. There was also an altar to the north, dedicated in honour of St. Ethelbert, king and confessor, and one to the south, dedicated to St. Miletus. Six more steps led to the sanctuary, from which the worshipper could pass behind the altar screen. Eastward of the screen was the famous shrine of St. Erkenwald. Mention has already been made of the original tomb in the first cathedral. Legend reports that in the fire of the 11th century, the saint's resting place alone remained unharmed. On the 14th of November, 1148, his bones were transferred to a more noble tomb. Gilbert de Seagrave laid the first stone of a still more magnificent shrine in 1314, in which the body of the saint was placed on the 1st of February, 1326. This was, for a long period, the most famous of the tombs of old St. Paul's, to which pilgrims flocked from distant parts, and riches of all kinds were lavished upon it. A canon of the church, Walter de Thorpe, gave to it all his gold rings and jewels. The dean and chapter in 18 Edward II presented a rich store of gold and silver and precious stones. In the 31st of Edward III, three goldsmiths were engaged upon it for a whole year at wages of eight shillings a week for one and five shillings a week for each of the others. King John of France, when he was a prisoner in England, made an offering of twelve nobles, and Richard de Preston, citizen and grocer, presented a remarkable sapphire in the reign of Richard II. This stone was supposed to cure infirmities of the eyes, and the donor directed proclamation to be made of its great virtues. Dean Evere, in 1407, provided an endowment for the lights which burned before the shrine. The choir was full of tombs and brasses many of them of great importance. On the north side stood the stately tomb of John of Gaunt, Duke of Lancaster, died, 1399, with recumbent figures of the Duke and his second wife, Constance of Castile. Special offices were performed at several of the shrines, especially those of St. Erkenwald and St. Thomas of Lancaster, as the grandson of Henry III was popularly styled, although he was never canonized. On the 28th of June, 1323, Edward II sent a letter to Stephen Gravesend, Bishop of London, commanding him to prohibit the reverence paid to Thomas of Lancaster in the cathedral. The high altar was the scene twice a year of a strange custom, 
which was kept up for several centuries. Sir William Le Band, in 1275, commenced to give yearly a doe in winter and a fat buck in summer, to be offered at the altar and then distributed to the resident canons. These were given in lieu of twenty-two acres of land lying within the Lordship of Wesley in Essex, to be enclosed within his park of Torringham, so that the knight appears to have made a very good bargain. The reception of the buck and doe was, quote, till Queen Elizabeth's days, solemnly performed at the steps of the choir by the canons of this cathedral, attired in sacred vestments, and wearing garlands of flowers on their heads, and the horns of the buck carried on the top of a spear in procession round about within the body of the church, with a great noise of hornblowers. As already stated, the choir was rebuilt early in the thirteenth century, and in 1255 it was considerably extended. Previously a street ran close to the east end, from Watling Street to Cheapside, and here stood the old church of St. Faith. The exact site of the houses was marked by nine wells in a row which were found by Wren. When this street was built over and the church pulled down, the parishioners were provided with a church in the crypt. About the middle of the north side of the choir was a low arched door, and from this six and twenty steps led down to St. Faith's, at the eastern end of which was the Jesus Chapel. We have now traced the principal features of the exterior and interior of Old St. Paul's, and a few words may be said of the body who governed the cathedral. Bishop Stubbs, in the remarkable preface which he added to the Master of the Rolls edition of the historical works of Ralph de Dicito, Dean of London, at the end of the twelfth century, has given a vivid picture of the ecclesiastical greatness of London during the reigns of Henry II and Richard I. Ralph was the friend of Fitzstephen, the biographer of Becket, and before he became dean, he had held the office of archdeacon. Stubbs writes, quote, The fact that the Cathedral of Canterbury was in the hands of a monastic chapter left St. Paul's at the head of the secular clergy of southern England. It was an educational centre, too, where young statesmen spent their leisure in something like self-culture. London, with its 40,000 inhabitants, had 120 churches all looking to the cathedral as their mother. The resident canons had to exercise a magnificent hospitality, carefully prescribed in ancient statutes. Twice a year, each of them had to entertain the whole staff of the cathedral and to invite the bishop, the mayor, the sheriffs, aldermen, justices, and great men of the court. End quote. The dean was a capable head, and his government stands out in history as one of the most successful during a very difficult period. Quote, Early in 1187, Ralph lost his old friend and patron, Bishop Folio, and the See of London was not filled up for nearly three years. Within a few weeks after Folio's death, he had to receive the Archbishop of Canterbury, Baldwin, who visited the church on Mid-Lent Sunday, and he took advantage of the opportunity to obtain from him an injunction forbidding the persons who were in charge of the temporalities of the sea to interfere with the spiritual officers in the discharge of their duties. End quote. How important a body the chapter of St. Paul's really was may be inferred from the remarkable fact stated by Sergeant Pulling in his work on The Order of the Coif, that among the canons in the reign of Henry III, were as many as ten of the judges at Westminster Hall. The early history of the parishes of London is one of great difficulty and complexity. Although some of the parishes must be of great antiquity, 
we have little authentic information respecting them before the conquest. The dedications of many of the churches indicate their great age, but the constant fires in London not only destroyed the buildings, but also the records within the buildings. The original churches appear to have been very small, as may be judged from their number. It is not easy, however, to understand how it was that when the parishes were first formed, so small an area was attached to each. Mr. Lofty is of opinion that there is no proof that London was divided into more than three or four parishes until the time of Alfred, or indeed, till much later. He has written a very instructive chapter on The Church in London in his London Historic Towns, 1887, but he is not able to give any very definite information. Moreover, he doubts whether it is wise to take for granted the early dedications of, for instance, such churches as are named in honour of Saints Alphage, Magnus and Olev, or of Saints Ethelberga and Ossith. The parish church of which we have the most authentic notice before the conquest is St. Helen's, Bishopsgate, in existence many years before the Priory of the Nuns of St. Helen's was founded. In 1010 the remains of St. Edmund, King and Martyr were removed from Edmundsbury in order that they might not fall into the hands of the Danes, and deposited in the Church of St. Helen where they remained for three years. Many of the London churches were small, but some were of considerable size. When the religious houses were dissolved, the churches of some of these became the most important of the parish churches. The Church of St. Mary Le Beau in Cheapside, better known as Bow Church, is named from having been the first in London built on arches of stone, and the Norman crypt is of great interest. When Wren built his church, he used these arches of the old churches to support his own superstructure. This crypt also gives its name to the court of arches which was held here. In the Liber Albus, there is a chapter on the periodical visits of the mayor to various churches on certain saints' days, such as to St. Thomas's at the Feast of All Saints, November the 1st, to St. Peter's on Cornhill on the Monday in the Feast of Pentecost, and to St. Bartholomew's and St. Michael Le Kern on other occasions. The position of the parish priest was a good one in the eyes of the parishioners, who looked up to him as a friend and resented the interference with his duties by monks and chantry priests. Among the parish priests, the highest rank was conceded to the rector of St. Peter's, Cornhill. The medieval writers who are mostly vituperative when speaking of monks and friars have little but good to say of the parson. The great evil of lay rectorship, which has done so much to injure the church, was largely introduced by the monasteries. Bishop Stubbs, in his introduction to the historical works of Ralph de Dicito, writes, quote, St. Paul stood at the head of the religious life of London, and by its side, at some considerable interval, however, St. Martin's Le Grand, St. Bartholomew's Smithfield, and the great and ancient foundation of Trinity, Aldgate. End quote. Besides the chapter of St. Paul's, there were several other bodies of secular canons. One of these was at the Collegiate Church of St. Martin Le Grand within Aldersgate, which church was founded about A.D. 1056, and its privileges confirmed by William the Conqueror. It had special rights as a royal free chapel and its privileges of sanctuary were given by Henry VIII to the abbot and convent of Westminster. Others were the College of St. Michael, Crooked Lane, founded by William Walworth in 1380, Barking College, Holmes College, 
and several other colleges in London, besides the Collegiate Chapel of St. Stephen, Westminster. The canons regular of the Order of St. Austin occupied the Priory of Christ Church or Holy Trinity, the Priory of St. Bartholomew in Smithfield, the Priory of St. Mary Overy and Southwark, and many hospitals. These canons were less strict than monks, but lived under one roof and had a common dormitory and refectory. They were well shod, well clothed, and well fed. Monks always shaved, but canons wore beards and caps on their heads. The chief rule of the canons regular was that of St. Augustine, or Austin, Bishop of Hippo, A.D. 395. The order was little known until the 10th or 11th centuries, and was not brought to England until after the Norman Conquest, and the designation of Austin canons was not adopted until some years afterwards. The Priory of Christchurch, or the Holy Trinity within Aldgate, was a house of the first importance in London, and the Pope absolved it from all jurisdiction. Norman, the first prior, was the first canon regular of his order in England. The Priory was founded in 1108 by Queen Maud, and in 1125 the land and soak of Knicknengild, now Port Soak and Ward, were assigned to it. The prior became an alderman of London by reason of possessing the soak without the port or gate called Aldgate, an honour continued to his successors till the dissolution of the religious houses, when the church was surrendered and the site of the priory granted by Henry VIII to Sir Thomas Audley, Lord Chancellor. End of chapter 11, part 1. End of section 22. Section 23 of The Story of London. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Paul Lawley Jones. The Story of London by Henry B. Wheatley. Chapter 11 The Church and Education, Part 2. The great Benedictine monastery of black monks was situated at Westminster away from the city, as was usual. This was the only monastic house subject to the rule of St. Benedict in the neighbourhood of London, but the houses of nuns, of which there were many dotted over the suburbs of London, were governed by the rule of St. Benedict. Among these may be mentioned the nunneries of Barking, Clerkenwell, Halliwell at the eastern extremity of Finsbury Fields, St. Helens, Bishopsgate, Kilburn, and Stratford at Bow. As time proceeded, there was a widespread desire for a stricter rule among the monks, and reforms of the Benedictine rule were instituted at Cluny, A.D. 910, Chartreux, about 1080, and Cito, 1098. All these reforms were represented in London. Cluniac Order This reform was begun by Bernan, abbot of Guigny in Burgundy, and perfected by Odo, Abbot of Cluny. The first charter of the order was dated A.D. 910. The order was first brought to England by William, Earl of Warren, son-in-law to William the Conqueror, who built the first house at Lewis in Sussex about 1077. The Priory of Bermondsey in Surrey was founded by Aylwin Child, citizen of London, about 1082. The manor of Bermondsey and other revenues were granted by William Rufus. The original priories were subject to the heads of the parent foreign houses, but John Attleburgh, 
prior of Bermondsey, having procured the erection of his priory into an abbacy, himself became the first of the abbots in 1399. If we are to believe the word of the satirists, we may judge that the rule of the Cluniac order was hard, for we are told that, quote, when you wish to sleep, they awake you, end quote, and, quote, when you wish to eat, they make you fast, end quote. There were cells attached to the Cluniac house of Bermondsey at Aldersgate, Cripplegate, and Holborn. Carthusians Bruno first instituted the order at Chartreux in the Diocese of Grenoble in France about 1080. The rule was confirmed by Pope Alexander III about 1174. This was the most strict of any of the religious orders. The monks never ate flesh and were obliged to fast on bread, water and salt one day in every week. No one was permitted to go out of the bounds of the monastery except the priors and procurators or proctors, and they only upon the necessary affairs of their houses. When the order was brought to England in 1178, the first house was started at Whitham in Somersetshire. In all there were nine houses of the order in England. One of these was the Charter House of London, which was not founded until 1371 by Sir Walter Manny, Knight of the Garter. Until Henry II founded the Carthusian house at Whitham, it is said that there was no such thing known in England as a monk's cell, as we understand the term. It was a peculiarity of the Carthusian order, and when it was first introduced it was regarded as a startling novelty for any privacy or anything approaching solitude to be tolerated in a monastery. The Carthusian system never found much favour in England. Cistercians the Cistercian order was named after Cistertium, or Citeaux, in the bishopric of Chalon in Burgundy, where it was founded in 1098 by Robert, abbot of Molem, in that province. St. Bernard was a great promoter of the order, and founded an abbey at Clairvaux about 1116, and after him the members of the order were sometimes named Bernardines. It was usual to plant these monasteries in solitary and uncultivated places, and no other house, even of their own order, was allowed to be built within a certain distance of the original establishment. This makes it surprising to learn that there were two separate houses of this order in the near neighbourhood of London. A branch of the order came to England about 1128, and their first house was founded at Waverley in Surrey. Very shortly after, about 1134, the Abbey of Stratford Langthorne in Essex was founded by William de Montfichet, who endowed it with all his lordship in West Ham. It was not until two centuries afterwards that the second Cistercian house in the immediate neighbourhood of London was founded. This was the Abbey of St Mary Graces, Eastminster or New Abbey, without the walls of London, which Edward III instituted in 1350 after a severe scourge of plague, the so-called Black Death. The two great military orders, the Knights Hospitallers of St. John of Jerusalem and the Templars, followed the Augustinian rule, and both were settled in London. The Knights Hospitallers were founded about 1092 by the merchants of Amalfi in Italy for the purpose of affording hospitality to pilgrims in the Holy Land. The Hospital, or Priory of St. John, was founded in 1100 by Jordan Brizet and his wife Muriel, 
outside the northern wall of London, and the original village of Clerkenwell grew up around the buildings of the knights. A few years after this, the Brethren of the Temple of Solomon at Jerusalem, or Knights of the Temple, came into being at the Holy City, and they settled first on the south side of Holborn, near Southampton Buildings. They removed to Fleet Street, or the New Temple, in 1184, where, as Spencer terms it, quote, they decayed through pride, end quote, and the order, after much persecution, was suppressed in England, as it had been in other countries, by command of the Pope. The house in Fleet Street was given in 1313 by Edward II to Aymer de Valence, Earl of Pembroke, at whose death in 1323 the property passed to the Knights of St. John, who leased the new temple to the lawyers, still the occupants of the district. The Templars wore a long flowing white mantle with a red cross on the left breast. The Knights Hospitallers originally wore a black robe with a cross, but subsequently when the order was reconstructed on the model of the Templars, they wore a red mantle with a white cross on the shoulder. After Palestine was lost, the original body passed, one, to Acre, two, to Cyprus, three, to Rhodes, and four, to Malta. The Templars left their beautiful church, to continue for centuries one of the most interesting architectural relics of a past age. The buildings of the Knights Hospitallers at Clerkenwell passed through more vicissitudes, and when the religious houses were suppressed by Henry VIII, these were mostly destroyed. The gateway which was completed in 1504 by Prior Docra still stands, but no portion of the church or other building remains above ground. Friars the enthusiasm which brought the great religious movement after the conquest and produced the numerous monastic institutions of the country had cooled by the beginning of the 13th century when the remarkable evangelical revival instituted almost simultaneously by St. Dominic and St. Francis swept over Europe. The distinctive characteristics which at first marked them off from the monks were poverty and care for others. The monks lived apart from the world in order to attend first to their own souls, while the friars placed care for others first of all duties. They preached to and visited the masses. Hence, instead of living in retired spots, they settled in the heart of the cities. In their humility they called themselves brothers rather than fathers, but in course of time they fell far short of the ideals of their founders. Their property increased, and their houses grew to be as rich as those of the monks, and in consequence they became singularly unpopular. Mr. Trevelyan writes in his Age of Wycliffe that while the monks were despised by the reformer, the friars were hated. Black Friars The Spaniard, St. Dominic, founded the order of preaching friars at the beginning of the 13th century. Their rule, which was chiefly that of St. Augustine, was approved of by Pope Innocent III in the Lateran Council, A.D. 1215, by word of mouth and by the bull of Pope Honorius, A.D. 1216. They were called Dominicans from their founder, preaching friars from their office to preach and convert heretics, and black friars from their garments. In France, they were known as Jacobins from having their first house in the Rue Saint-Jacques in Paris. This name gained a portentous meaning in the 18th century from the French revolutionists who met in the disused friary. At first the friars used the same habit as the Austin canons, 
but about the year 1219 they took another, viz, a white cassock with a white hood over it, and when they went abroad, a black cloak with a black hood over their white vestments. They came to England in 1221, and their first house was at Oxford. Shortly after this they came to London, settled in Holborn near Lincoln's Inn, where they remained for more than fifty years. In 1276 they removed to the neighbourhood of Baynard Castle, where they erected a magnificent house with the help of royal, clerical, and other noble benefactors, which has given a name to a London district that it still retains. The place is thus described by Stevens, the monastic historian. Quote, the monastery enjoyed all the privileges and immunities that any religious house had, and having a very large extent of ground within its liberty, the same was shut up with four gates, and all the inhabitants within it were subject to none but the king, the superior of the monasteries, and justices of that precinct, so that neither the mayor nor the sheriffs, nor any other officers of the city of London, had the least jurisdiction or authority therein. All which liberties the inhabitants preserved some time after the suppression of the monastery. End quote. Thomas Lord Wake is said to have intended to bring Dominican nuns into England, and he had the king's license for this purpose, but he does not appear to have carried out his intention. The nuns of Dartford in Kent are supposed to have been of this order at one time. Greyfriars The Italian St. Francis was the founder of this order, whose rule he drew up in 1209. It was approved of by Pope Innocent III in 1210, and by the Lateran Council in 1215. His followers were called Franciscans from their founder, Grey Friars from their clothing, and Minor Friars from their humility. Nine Grey Friars landed at Dover in the eighth year of Henry III, 1223-1224. Five of them settled at Canterbury, and there founded the first house of the order in England. The remaining four established themselves in London, lodging for fifteen days with the Dominicans in Holborn. These four, we learn from a Cottonian manuscript, were 1. Richard Pugworth, an Englishman, priest, and preacher. 2. Richard Seneneff, English, Clark Acolyte, a youth. 3. Henry Detrus, by nation a Lombard, lay brother. 4. Monachetus, also a lay brother. These four men founded the great London house of Greyfriars. They removed to Cornhill, where they erected cells, made converts, and acquired the goodwill of the mayor and citizens. John Ewan, Mercer, appropriated to the use of the friars a piece of ground within Newgate. Here a noble building was erected by the help of numerous distinguished persons, which contained a church, a chapter house, a dormitory, a refectory, an infirmatory, etc. The district was long known as Greyfriars, and afterwards as Christ Church or Christ's Hospital. The habit of the friars was a loose garment of a grey colour reaching down to their ankles, with a cowl of the same and a cloak over it when they went abroad. They girded themselves with cords and went barefoot. In connection with the Franciscans were the nuns of the Order of St. Clair, founded at Assisi by St. Clair about 1212. The nuns observed St. Francis's rule and wore the same coloured habit as the Franciscan friars. They were called poor clares and also minoresses. 
About the year 1293, Blanche, Queen of Navarre, wife to Edward, Earl of Lancaster, Leicester, and Derby, founded a house for the Minoresses on the east side of the street leading from the tower to Aldgate without the walls of the city. This street is still known as the Minories. There were only three other houses of this order in England, viz. at Waterbeach and Denny in Cambridgeshire and Brissyard in Suffolk. Austin Friars The history of the foundation of the Friars Eremites of the Order of St. Augustine has not been given with any fullness, and its origin is somewhat uncertain. They came to England from Italy about 1250, and a house in Broad Street Ward was founded by Humphrey Bohun, Earl of Hereford and Essex, in the year 1253. The habit of the Austin Friars was a white garment and scapulary when they were in the house, but in the choir and when they went abroad, they had over the former a sort of cowl and a large hood, both black. Round their waist they had a black leather girdle fastened with an ivory bone. Footnote. In connection with the history of the Austin Friars, the fact that the Church of the Friary still exists is one of great interest. At the dissolution, a large portion of the Friary was given to Lord St. John, afterwards Marquis of Winchester and Lord Treasurer. The church was reserved by the king, and the nave still remains. End of footnote. White Friars The origin of the Friars of the Blessed Virgin of Mount Carmel is not very clear. Their rule, which was chiefly that of St. Basil, is said to have been given to them by Albert, Patriarch of Jerusalem about 1205, and to have been confirmed by Pope Honorius in 1224. They were driven out of Palestine by the Saracens about 1238, and they then sought refuge in Europe. They were brought into England by John Vassy and Richard Gray, and had their first houses at Huln in Northumberland and Aylesford in Kent. At the latter place they held their first European charter, A.D. 1245. The London House of the Carmelites, or White Friars, was founded in 1241 by Sir Richard Gray on land situated between Fleet Street and the Thames, which was given by Edward I. The garments of the friars at first were white, but having been obliged by the infidels to change them to party-coloured ones, they continued these for fifty years after their coming to England. But about the year 1290 they returned to the use of white again. Footnote Dugdale says that the Patriarch Albert prescribed for the Carmelite friars a party-coloured mantle of white and red, and that Pope Honorius III, disliking this, appointed in 1285 that it should be all white. End of footnote. Of the four chief orders of mendicant friars, the Carmelites ranked last, and in official processions had to give place to the Dominicans, Franciscans, and Austin friars. The district which originally contained the House of the White Friars continues still to be known by the old name. After the dissolution of the religious houses, the privileges of sanctuary were still allowed to the inhabitants, and in consequence the place, generally known as Alsatia, gained a most unenviable notoriety. Other places in London obtained an evil repute from the same cause, but White Friars was far beyond all others in disgraceful associations. It is known from old records that the bad repute of the district dates back to a period long before the suppression of the friary. From a close roll of the 20th Edward III, it appears that persons of ill repute had, for a considerable time, 
made their abode so close to the friary that the friars could not celebrate divine service in their church in consequence of the continual clamours and outcries by which the district was disturbed, and the mayor and aldermen of London were ordered, in the king's name, for the tranquillity of the prior and brethren, to remove the nuisance. Mr. Trevelyan writes, quote, Twenty years before Wycliffe's attack was made, Fitzralph, Bishop of Armagh, had laid a famous indictment against the four orders before the Pope at Avignon. It made a great stir at the time, but came to nothing, for the friars were under the Pope's special protection. The bishop chiefly complained of their competition with his secular clergy in the matter of confession and absolution. End quote. Besides the four chief orders, several other orders of friars were settled in London. First in importance of these were the crutched friars, from the cross forming part of the staff carried by them, which was styled a crutch. This was afterwards given up, and a cross of red cloth was placed upon the breast of the gown. The order is said to have been instituted by Gerard, prior of St. Mary of Morella at Bologna, and confirmed in 1169 by Pope Alexander III, who brought them under St. Austin's rule. They came to England in 1244, and had their first house at Colchester. It was not until about 1298 that these friars came to London, and the house in the parish of St. Olave, Hart Street, was founded by Ralph Hosier and William Saburns. The memory of the friary is kept alive in the name of the street that marks its site. Other orders in London were the Friars of the Penance of Jesus Christ, or Di Sacco, and the Friars di Areno. The Friars of the Sack, according to Stowe, first settled in a house near Aldersgate, outside the gate. This was about the year 1257. When the Jews were banished from England by Edward I, these friars were given the synagogue on the south side of Lothbury, at the north corner of the old Jewry. The tenements which the prior and friars held in the street, quote, called Culture District, end quote, were in the parishes of St. Olav in the Jewry, and of St. Margaret de Lothbury. The friars of the Order of St. Mary de Areno were settled at Westminster at a house near Charing Cross, given to them by Sir William de Arno, or Amon, 51 Henry III, and here the small house remained until the death of Huda Ebor, the last friar, 10 Edward II. Bishop Stubbs refers to a cemetery near St. Clement Danes, which once belonged to the Pied Friars, a small order of mendicants which had been suppressed in 1278. In the revised edition of Dugdale's Monasticon by Cayley, Ellis, and Bandinal, there is a notice of the house of the Fratres de Pica, or Pied Friars at Norwich, from Bloomfield's History of Norfolk, but no mention is made of any house in London. Tanner says that there is no mention of these friars in any public record, and Taylor, in his Index Monasticus, gives no new information concerning them. Blomfield says that the friars were called from their outward garment, which was black and white like a magpie. At Hounslow there was a house of Trinitarian or Maturine friars for the redemption of captives. The earliest record known of this priory is a charter dated 1296. Besides the religious houses, there were, during the Middle Ages, many hermitages over the country, and several of these were to be found in London. One was in Monkwell Street, Cripplegate, which was founded by the widow of Sir Aymer de Valence, Earl of Pembroke, who was killed in a tournament in 1324. This was Mary de Castillon, daughter of Guy, Count of Saint-Paul, 
third wife of the Earl and the foundress of Pembroke Hall, Cambridge, who established the hermitage for the good of the soul of her husband. London was so full of religious houses, both within and without the walls, that when the great dissolution took place in Henry VIII's reign, large portions of the town were left desolate. Doubtless the time had come for this great revolution, or otherwise, even that king could never have carried it through. The popular feeling which held these great establishments in disfavour had gradually grown. Still, the number of those who were dependent upon the religious houses was very considerable, and great evils followed the dissolution. Multitudes were thrown out of their regular employment, and the poor who were dependent upon the alms bestowed upon them at the gates of the monasteries had to be considered and provided for in some other way. The difficulties of this position certainly formed one of the causes of the institution of the poor law in the reign of Henry's daughter Elizabeth. Most of the relics of the various religious houses which occupied so large a portion of London and its environs have been entirely swept away. In the 18th and the beginning of the 19th centuries, many remains existed. There were then vestiges of St. Helen's Priory, and the old hall of the nunnery was not pulled down until 1799. Relics of Bermondsey Abbey were standing in 1807. The Grand Crypt, built soon after the foundation of the house of the Priory of St. John at Clerkenwell, which was added to and afterwards made to form an undercroft to the choir, is now one of the most interesting of the remains of medieval buildings in London. It is below the church of St. John, Clerkenwell, and has been restored with loving care to much of its original beauty. Other portions of the old buildings of the Priory are to be seen in the cellars of some of the houses round about. The position of the old charterhouse buildings can still be traced, although little of the old monastery exists, but the east and south walls of the chapel and washhouse court can be seen. The latter was built by the monks to accommodate the lay brothers who acted as servants to the convent. The walls of the monastic refectories surround the present brothers' library. Beneath this is the monks' cellar. The friaries situated within the walls of old London have left little but their names to tell the Londoner of today of their existence. Still, even here, something of the past remains. The Church of Austin Friars is left to us, and the position of the choir of the great Franciscan house of Greyfriars is marked by the present Christchurch, Newgate Street. Some traces of the buildings of the White Friars have also been found underground. Sanctuary One of the privileges of the Middle Ages which continued on into comparatively modern times was that of sanctuary, and in its belated form this caused many gross scandals. There are numerous stories connected with the College of St. Martin's Le Grand which was under the jurisdiction of the abbot of Westminster. One of these relates to Richard III and Lady Anne. When the Duke of Gloucester desired to marry Anne, the betrothed of the late Edward Prince of Wales, son of Henry VI, her brother-in-law Clarence objected and hid her away. Richard discovered her in London, disguised as a kitchen maid, and placed her in sanctuary at St. Martin's Le Grand. In 1416 a man was sentenced to the pillory for slandering an alderman but he escaped and found sanctuary at the Monastery of St. Peter's, Westminster. Mr. G. M. Trevelyan, in his work on the Age of Wycliffe, gives a full account of the great scandal which occurred in 1378, when two prisoners escaped from the tower and sought sanctuary in Westminster Abbey. The governor of the tower, with his soldiers, entered the nave and attempted to drag one of the prisoners, who was attending mass, out of sanctuary. 
He fled for his life, and his pursuers chased him twice round the choir. He was stabbed to death, and one of the attendants of the church interfering to save him was killed in the scuffle. Archbishop Sudbury excommunicated the governor of the tower, Sir Alan Bushell, and all his aiders and abettors. Richard II ordered the reading of the excommunication to be stopped and the church to be reconsecrated. The abbot refused to allow the place to be hallowed, and the services ceased for a while. There was now an open quarrel between church and state, which continued till the Parliament met at Gloucester in October, quote, when the whole question of sanctuary was brought up in all its issues. End quote. Mr. Trevelyan sums up the case in these words. Quote, in vain Wycliffe argued, in vain the commons petitioned and the lords hectored. From all the mountains of talk in the discussion at Gloucester, there came forth the most absurd legislative mouse in the shape of a statute passed at Westminster by the next Parliament in the spring of 1379. By this act, the fraudulent debtor taking sanctuary was to be summoned at the door of the church once a week for thirty-one days. If at the end of that time he refused to appear, judgment was to go against him by default, and his goods, even if they had been given away by collusion, might be seized by his creditors. This mild measure, which was scarcely an interference with the right of sanctuary itself, was accepted even by the staunchest adherents of the church. End quote. If a felon succeeded in taking sanctuary in a church or other privileged place before capture, he was free from the clutches of the law for the space of forty days. He was allowed to be supplied with food, but he was sufficiently guarded to prevent his escape. If he elected to abjure the realm, an oath was administered to him. There seem to have been special privileges of sanctuary in the city, for we learn that at the end of the thirteenth century it was ordered by the alderman that no robber, homicide, nor other fugitive in the churches should be watched. This ordinance was for the purpose of giving a fugitive a chance of escape out of sanctuary. In 1321, a royal pardon was granted to the city for neglecting to keep watch on those who had fled for sanctuary to the city churches. This was granted, however, on the distinct understanding that in future a watch was to be kept on such fugitives in the same manner as in other parts of the realm. In 1334, the mayor was roundly taken to task, and made to do penance by the archbishop for allowing a felon to escape from the Church of All Hallows, Grace Church. The sanctuary men were marked by a badge representing cross keys. Education Medieval London was well supplied with facilities for education. We know that there were many schools in various parts of the city, although we still require more definite information. The church supplied the public well with schools, although for a time these fell into decay, and then it was that lay schools came into existence. Bishop Stubbs writes, quote, Over against the many grievances which modern thought has alleged against the unlearned ages which passed before the invention of printing, it ought to be set to the credit of medieval society that clerkship was never despised or made unnecessarily difficult of acquisition. The sneer of Walter Mapp, who declared that in his days the villains were attempting to educate their ignoble and degenerate offspring in the liberal arts, proves that even in the twelfth century the way was open. Richard II rejected the proposition that the villains should be forbidden to send their children to the schools to learn clergy. 
and even at a time when the supply of labour ran so low that no man who was not worth twenty shillings a year in land or rent was allowed to apprentice his child to a craft, a full and liberal exception was made in favour of learning. Every man or woman, the words occur in the petition and the statute of artificers passed in 1406, of what state or condition that he be, shall be free to set their son or daughter to take learning at any school that pleaseth them within the realm. End quote. Again, quote, Schools were by no means uncommon things. There were schools in all cathedrals. Monasteries and colleges were everywhere, and wherever there was a monastery or a college, there was a school. Towards the close of the Middle Ages, notwithstanding many causes for depression, there was much vitality in the schools. End quote. The larger English abbeys about the country not only had schools within their own precincts, but others dependent upon them in the neighbouring towns. Fitzstephen, in his description of London as preserved in the city's Liber Customarum, particularises the Church of St. Martin-le-Grand as one of the principal churches of London which had ancient and prerogative schools, the others being St. Paul's and Holy Trinity, Aldgate. In other texts of Fitzstephen's work, the names of the churches are not mentioned, and Stowe, overlooking the text in the city archives, gives the three schools as attached to St. Paul's, St. Peter's Westminster, and St. Saviour's. Fitzstephen's patron, St. Thomas of Canterbury, received his early education at one of the London schools after leaving the school of the canons regular at Merton, and before proceeding to the university. In 1447, four parish priests, in a petition to Parliament, begged the commons to consider the great number of grammar schools, quote, that some time were in diverse parts of the realm beside those that were in London, and how few there be in these days. End quote. They asked leave to appoint schoolmasters in their parishes to be removed at their discretion. King Henry VI granted the petition, but subjected the priest's discretion to the advice of the ordinary. During this king's reign, nine grammar schools were opened in London alone. End of chapter 11. End of section 23. Section 24 of The Story of London. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Paul Lawley Jones. The Story of London by Henry B. Wheatley. Chapter 12 London from Medieval to Modern Times. Medieval London was almost entirely within the walls but outside the walls to the west there was a connecting line of mansions on the river front leading to the village of Charing and on to Westminster, which is almost of equal antiquity with London itself. When the body of Queen Eleanor arrived at its last stage, the funeral procession stopped a fair way from Westminster Abbey. One might have expected that the body would have remained under the shadow of its last resting place, and we are, therefore, led to inquire why the village of Charing was chosen. The only answer to this question that can be given is that here, on the site of Northumberland House, now occupied by Northumberland Avenue, there then stood a hospital and chapel of St. Mary belonging to the Priory of Ronceval, Roncevals, or de Rousy de Val, in the Diocese of Pampelon in Navarre. At the death of Eleanor, 
This house was a comparatively recent establishment, having been founded by William Marshall, Earl of Pembroke, in the reign of Henry III, but it probably afforded sufficient accommodation for the funeral procession for one night. The house was suppressed as an alien priory in the reign of Henry V, but restored in that of Edward IV for a fraternity. In the yearbooks of Henry VII, the master, wardens, brethren and sisters of Roncesvalles are mentioned, and these continued until the general suppression. The cross, which gives its name to the place, was erected in the years 1291 to 1294, and is supposed to have been the handsomest of the series. As good a copy of the original as our imperfect information allows is to be seen within the railings of the southeastern railway terminus. Westminster is of unknown antiquity, and was long known, from its wild growth of underwood, as Thorny, before the abbey and the palace arose to give the place a name which marked its position in relation to London and St. Paul's. There is but little authoritative history before Edward the Confessor and the consecration of the abbey church in 1065, but the history since that time is so considerable, and of so important a character, that it is impossible to do more than refer in these few words to what is universally acknowledged by all Englishmen to be the most hallowed building in the country. On the opposite shore of the Thames is Lambeth, where is situated the manor house of the Archbishops of Canterbury, now called Lambeth Palace. The site was originally given to the See of Rochester by the Countess Gouda, sister of Edward the Confessor and wife of Eustace, Count of Boulogne. But in the year 1197 the Bishop of Rochester made an exchange with the Archbishop of Canterbury for this place for other property, and Lambeth has ever since been the London residence of the Archbishops. From here we pass over Lambeth Marsh to Southwark, a place whose history has been intimately associated with that of the City of London, and is now an integral part of the county. The chief glory of the borough is the Grand Church of the Augustinian Priory of St. Mary Overy, dating from the beginning of the 12th century, and now known as St. Saviour's. Southwark has been, from the earliest times, the chief thoroughfare to and from London and the southern counties and towns, and the cities of the continent. From this cause, it was for centuries the quarter for famous old inns, beginning in order of importance with the Bear at the Bridge Foot, the Tabard of Chaucer, and following on with the King's Head, the White Hart, and the George, a portion of the latter hostelry only remaining to the present day. Southwark was also notorious for its prisons, the King's Bench, the Marshalsea, the White Lion, the Borough Compter, and the Clink. The last named was on the Bankside, so intimately associated from the earliest times with the rough sports of the Londoners, and in Elizabeth's reign, the chief home of the dramatic displays of that great period. The bank was then a long, straggling street, extending from the manor of Paris Garden on the west to the liberty of the clink on the east. Near Paris Garden was the Falcon Inn, which was once supposed to have been the resort of Shakespeare. This apparently is an error, for at the time of the great dramatist's death there appears to have been no inns on the bankside. Little or nothing actually exists now that was there in the 16th century, but the contour of the street and nearly every name have lasted in their integrity and probably will last for many a long year more. Although during the reigns of the Tudor sovereigns the Renaissance became triumphant, the men and women of London still continued to live in a town which retained its medieval characteristics. 
Two striking scenes in the history of London during the reign of Mary I may be alluded to here. When the Queen made known her intention of marrying Philip of Spain, the discontent of the nation found vent in the rising of Sir Thomas Wyatt, and the city had to prepare itself against attack. Wyatt took possession of Southwark, and expected to have been admitted into London, but finding the gate of the bridge closed against him and the drawbridge cut down, he marched to Kingston. Having restored the bridge there, which had been destroyed, he proceeded towards London. In consequence of the breakdown of some of his guns, he imprudently halted at Turnham Green. Had he not done this, he might have obtained possession of the city. He planted his ordnance on Hay Hill, and then marched by St. James's Palace and Charing Cross. Here he was attacked by Sir John Gage with a thousand men, but he repulsed them, and reached Ludgate without further opposition. He was disappointed at the resistance which was made, and after musing a while, quote, upon a stall over against the Bell Savage Gate, end quote, he turned back. His retreat was cut off, and he surrendered to Sir Maurice Barclay. To picture another striking scene, we must move from the west side of London to the north. Outside Cripplegate was built a barbican or watchtower as an outwork for observance, and the little village, with its fore street, which grew up outside the walls, was sheltered behind it. The care of this important position was naturally given to trustworthy persons. Edward III appointed Robert Ufford, Earl of Suffolk, keeper of the Barbican, and from him it descended, in course of time, to Catherine, daughter of William Lord Willoughby de Aresby, who married, firstly, Charles Brandon, Duke of Suffolk, and secondly, Richard Bertie. Bertie and his wife were Protestants, and in Queen Mary's reign their lives were in such danger that they were forced to arrange in secrecy for their flight. Between four and five o'clock in the morning of the 1st of January 1554 to 1555, the Duchess began her adventurous journey in a thick fog. She could place no confidence in the bulk of her dependents, and there was great difficulty in arranging for company and baggage. As she was leaving, one Atkinson, a herald, issued from the house bearing a torch in his hand, and evidently bent on discovering the cause of the unusual bustle at this early hour. Fearing to be discovered, as she stood up under a gateway, she moved on quietly and left her baggage at the gatehouse. Finding that the herald still followed, she bade her servants to hasten onwards to Lion Quay, where she proposed to embark. Taking with her only two servants and her child, quote, she stepped into Garter House hard by, end quote. She dared not pass into the city through Cripplegate, but walked on to Moorgate. Thence she proceeded across town to the port of embarkation. Eventually she joined a husband who had preceded her in Flanders. Soon after her escape, she gave birth to a son at Vesel. He was named Peregrine, from the circumstance of his being born in a foreign land and during the wandering of his parents. This name was long continued in the family. The child grew up to be one of Queen Elizabeth's greatest generals, popularly known as Brave Lord Willoughby. Quote, but the bravest man in battle was Brave Lord Willoughby. End quote. There is a special fascination to us now in a picture of Elizabethan London, for with its history are bound up some of the most interesting incidents in the lives of the statesmen and other great men of the spacious days of the great Queen. And have we not Shakespeare and Ben Jonson among those who have portrayed the various places for us? 
London has always appealed to the imagination of the adventurous country youth to be the home of golden promise. If he can only get there, he believes that his successful career has commenced. But it appears that in Elizabeth's reign, there was pretty much the same difficulty in obtaining employment as there is now. This is illustrated by a curious account of the early life of John Sadler, a native of Stratford-on-Avon, and one of Shakespeare's contemporaries which has come down to us. Quote, he joined himself to the carrier and came to London, where he had never been before, and sold his horse in Smithfield, and having no acquaintance in London to recommend him or assist him, he went from street to street and house to house, asking if they wanted an apprentice, and though he met with many discouraging scorns and a thousand denials, he went on till he lighted on one Mr. Brokesbank, a grocer in Bucklersbury who, though he long denied him for want of sureties of his fidelity, and because the money he had, but ten pounds, was so disproportionate to what he used to receive with apprentices, yet upon his discreet account he gave of himself and the motives which put him upon that course, and promised to compensate with diligent and faithful service whatever else was short of his expectation, he ventured to receive him upon trial, in which he so well approved himself that he accepted him into his service, to which he bound him for eight years. End quote. The outdoor life of this time, with the men and women who frequented the streets, is brought vividly before our eyes in Ben Jonson's plays. The useful and useless members of society pass across the stage. The water carriers who congregate around the conduits are represented by Cobb in Every Man in His Humour. Before Sir Hugh Middleton made the new river and brought to men's houses, all water that was wanted had to be fetched from the conduits. The men who supplied the town drew off the water into large wooden tankards, broad at the bottom but narrow at the top, which held about three gallons. This vessel was borne upon the shoulder, and to keep the carrier dry, two towels were fastened over him, one to fall in front and the other to cover his back. The narrowness of the old London streets is strikingly shown in The Devil is an Ass where the lady and her lover speak gentle nothings to each other from the windows of two contiguous buildings. All the fashions of this time, the rapier-fighting of the gallants, the smoking madness of all classes at a time when tobacco was supposed to be the panacea for all the ills of human nature, the custom of garnishing conversation with oaths, are introduced in the books of Ben Jonson. The poet's love of good liquor and social intercourse made him a frequenter of inns, his acquaintance with the two rival taverns of Cheapside, the Mermaid and the Mitre, must have commenced early, because the names of both occur in the first quarto of Every Man in His Humour, 1601. In the later folio edition, the Mitre is changed to the Star and the Mermaid to the Windmill. The ever-memorable Mermaid was situated on the south side of Cheapside, between Bread Street and Friday Street. From the mention of this tavern in the first draft of every man in his humour, it may be inferred that Johnson was a frequenter before the famous club, consisting of Shakespeare, Johnson, Beaumont, Fletcher, Carew, Don, Selden and others, was established by Sir Walter Raleigh in 1603. The Mitre was a rival house, and some writers tried to write it up at the expense of the mermaid. Thus Middleton has the following dialogue in his comedy, Your Five Gallants, 1608. Quote, Goldstone. Where sup we, gallants? Personae. At Mermaid. Goldstone. Sup there who list, 
I have forsworn the house. Person A. Faith, I'm indifferent. Bungler. So are we, gentlemen. Person A. Name the place, Master Goldston. Goldston. Why, the mitre, in my mind, for neat attendance, diligent boys, and push, excels it far. All. Agreed, the mitre then. End quote. The windmill in the old jury, which occupies so prominent a position in the revised edition of Every Man in His Humour, was a house with a long history. It was first of all a synagogue for the Jews of the neighbourhood. Then it was granted by Henry III to the prior and brethren of the Order of Friars called the Fratres de Sacca, and in 1439 it was occupied by Lord Mayor Robert Large. In 1492, Sir Hugh Clopton, the worthy who built Clopton Bridge at Stratford-on-Avon, kept his mayoralty in the mansion which, a hundred years afterwards, was turned into a tavern. The Devil in Fleet Street was one of the most famous of the places of entertainment of the time. It is not known when Ben Johnson started the Apollo Club here, but it was probably not long before 1616 when The Devil is an Ass was acted. Herrick, in his well-known ode, mentions several other taverns to which Ben and his sons resorted. Quote, Ah, Ben, say how or when. Shall we thy guests meet at those lyric feasts, made at the sun, the dog, the triple ton, where we such clusters had, as made us nobly wild, not mad, and yet each verse of thine outdid the meal, outdid the frolic wine. End quote. It was in Johnson's day that the suburbs, which, as previously referred to, had long been treated with disfavour, were gradually asserting themselves, and the poet was particularly at home in the understanding of their peculiarities. Of the northern suburbs, the fullest mention is to be found in A Tale of a Tub, where we read of Totten Court, Kentish Town, Maribone, Kilbourne, Islington, and Belsize, and the fields near Pancras. If we look for Hoxton in a modern map of London, we shall find it near Old Street, St. Luke's, not far from the centre of the present London, but in Johnson's time it was a country place, cut off from the city by moorfields. Noel's house, every man in his humour, was at Hogsden, which was then, according to Stowe, quote, a large street with houses on both sides, end quote. Master Stephen describes his uncle's property as, quote, Middlesex land, end quote, and he himself is called a country gull, in opposition to Master Matthew, the town gull. Ben had reason to remember Hoxton, for it was in the fields close by that he fought and nearly killed Gabriel Spencer. Moorfields remained for several years in an almost impassable condition, but in 1511 regular dikes and bridges of communication over them were made in order partially to drain the rotten ground. In the play so frequently referred to we find Turnbull mentioned by Bobadil, among other disreputable places, as one of the, quote, skirts of the town, end quote. Turnbull, or more properly, Turnmill Street, was situated near Clerkenwell Green, and was known as the haunt of ruffians, thieves, and disorderly persons. Justice Shallow boasted to Falstaff of the wildness of his youth and the feats he had done in Turnbull Street. On the west, the Oxford Road, commencing at the village of St Giles, was in the country, and where Stratford Place now stands was a cottage among trees and hedges called the Lord Mayor's Banqueting House, 
which was used by the city magnates when they hunted at Bayswater and Hyde Park. This is alluded to in The Devil is an Ass. Quote, But we got the gentleman to go with me, and carry her bedding to a conduit head, hard by the place towards Tyburn which they call my Lord Mayor's Banqueting House. End quote. Eastward for Ratcliffe is a cry in The Alchemist. Ratcliffe, which Stowe remembered as a highway, with fair elm trees on each side, in later times became the synonym of all that is dangerous and disreputable in London streets. The actor William Kemp, in describing his remarkable Morris dance from London to Norwich, 1600, writes, quote, Being past Whitechapel and having left fair London, multitudes of Londoners left not me, either to keep a custom which many hold, that Mile End is no walk without a recreation at Stratford Bow with cream and cakes, or else for love they bear towards me, or perhaps to make themselves merry if I should chance, as many thought, to give over my Morris within a mile of Mile End. End quote. Shakespeare lived outside the city walls, and although we cannot exactly tell the position of his houses, it is pretty certain that he lived both in the parish of St. Helen, Bishopsgate, and in the Clink on the Bankside. Stuart London followed Tudor London, but with the death of James I in 1625, the older history may be said to close, for there was a considerable change during the reign of Charles I. The upper classes moved westward to Lincoln's Inn and Great Queen Street and Covent Garden. The great architect Inigo Jones built houses for them in both these districts. There was a certain stagnation in the movements of the population during the period of the Commonwealth, but at the restoration of Charles II, a new life came into existence. The exiled cavaliers returned to their country and found their fathers' houses in the city of London either occupied by others or unfitted for their reception. In consequence, they migrated to a district far from the city. The builders were busy in covering fields with houses, and Pall Mall, where the game of that name had been played, was planned out as a fine street, which remains to the present day. Lords Clarendon, Burlington and Berkeley erected mansions in Piccadilly, and Lord St Albans created St James's Square. Many others followed the example of these leaders of society, and the upper classes were completely cut off from the city. The contemptuous references to the traders of London which are first noticed in Elizabeth's reign became common. The sits were laughed at, and the courtiers poured out a torrent of abuse upon all those who lived in the East. The Great Fire of London of 1666 made an enormous change in the topography of London, and caused great misery, but it is supposed to have been a blessing in disguise as it cleared out many a centre of plague and disease. When we read of the heroism of the homeless Londoner, we must feel proud of our ancestors. They had lost everything, but they did not sit down and wring their hands. When the streets were destroyed by fire, the river became more than ever a highway, and boats filled with the goods of the sufferers covered the waters. Moorfields formed a handy open space, and soon streets of huts were raised to shelter the homeless families. Wren, England's greatest architect, John Evelyn, the most accomplished man of his time and the model of a royalist gentleman, and Robert Hooke, the great philosopher, were all three ready within a few hours of the fire with plans for the rebuilding of the city. But none of the plans were adopted, although all had their good points, and Wren's especially would certainly have given us fine avenues and convenient thoroughfares. 
the difficulties in carrying out these schemes would no doubt have been very great, and it is useless now to regret that a great opportunity was lost. Wren and Hook were appointed to superintend the progress of the work of making London arise anew out of its ashes. The Act of Parliament passed to regulate the work of rebuilding was a very practical and altogether excellent statute. In fact, the way in which all concerned in the complicated business of raising a new city worked in unison is worthy of every praise. At the same time that they proceeded with their labours, they did not allow the trade and business of a country's centre to fall out of gear, and this does the greatest credit to all concerned, both governors and governed. While the burnt town remained a waste, there must have been overwhelming inconveniences, but no time was allowed to be lost, and in the end a new city arose infinitely superior in comfort and convenience to that which had gone before, although certainly it was not so picturesque. Before passing on to take a rapid view of the later periods of London life, some mention may be made of a few of the interesting buildings that escaped the fire and have not previously been alluded to in these pages. Outside the confines of the city to the west grew up from early times a district with many various associations. Curious traditions and odd customs gather round the history of the parish of St. Clement Danes, where Westminster and London met, which still suggest many points of special interest well worthy of fuller investigation than they have as yet received. The accompanying view shows Temple Bar and the Old World Houses of Butcher Row. The first mention of Temple Bar is in a grant of land, quote, Extra Baram Novi Temple, end quote, in 1301. At that time there was no building but merely posts, rails and chain to mark the extent of the liberties of London. In course of time a gate was erected, and the one which existed at the time of the Great Fire was pulled down, and a new gate was erected in 1670 to 1672 from the designs of Sir Christopher Wren. This, after existing for two centuries as one of the best-known objects in London, was removed in the winter of 1878 to 1879. The stones remained exposed to the weather for ten years before Temple Bar was re-erected at the entrance to the late Sir Henry Moe's private grounds at Fearbolds, Waltham Cross. The erection was completed on the 3rd of December 1888, and the gate in its new position and restored condition presents a very handsome appearance, showing it to be worthy of its great architect. The history of Butcher Row is crowded with incidents in the lives of authors and the unfortunate hangers-on to literature. The timber-framed house with projecting upper stories and barge-boarded gables, the front decorated with fleur-de-lis and coronets, was known as Beaumont House, and it is said that Sully, then Marquis of Rosny, supped and slept there on his arrival in London, 1603, as ambassador to James I. Butcher Row was pulled down in 1813, and Pickett Street was erected in its place. This street was pulled down to make way for the new law courts, and now nearly the whole northern portion of St. Clement's Parish has been cleared away. A great improvement has been made, but in order to obtain this, many picturesque houses of interest have had to be destroyed. Returning within the bar to the city, and walking up Chancery Lane, we come to Lincoln's Inn Gateway, one of the three historical gateways of importance in London, the other two being St. John's Gate Clerkenwell and the entrance to St. James's Palace. This gatehouse of brick was built by Sir Thomas Lovell, Knight of the Garter, son of the executor of Henry VII, and bears the date upon it of 1518. This interesting building, although perfectly sound and in good condition, 
was shored up a few years ago when old chambers by the side of it were pulled down and rebuilt, and it then narrowly escaped destruction. Efforts were successfully made to save the gate, and it is to be hoped that it may remain to give distinction to Chancery Lane for many years. Returning to Chancery Lane and crossing Holborn, we come to Gray's Inn. The fine hall, which is full of associations of the deepest interest, was built between the year 1555 and 1560. Of the hall which it replaced there is no record, save that in 5 Edward VI, 1551, it, quote, was sealed with fifty-four yards of wainscot at two shillings a yard, end quote. The present hall has the great distinction, according to Mr. Halliwell Phillips, of being, quote, one of the only two buildings now remaining in London in which, so far as we know, any of the plays of Shakespeare were performed in his own time. End quote. The other, of course, being the Middle Temple Hall where Twelfth Night was acted on February the 2nd, 1601 to 2. The Comedy of Errors was played on the evening of Innocence Day, December the 28th, 1594, in the hall before a crowded audience. Some of the guests from the Inner Temple created a disturbance because they were not properly accommodated, and this led to an official inquiry. Mr. Sidney Lee thinks it probable that Shakespeare himself was not present, as he was acting on the same day before the Queen at Greenwich. Another performance of the play was given in the hall by the Elizabethan Stage Society on December the 6th, 1895. George Gascoigne's Jocasta, adapted from the Phoenice of Euripides, was acted in the refectory in 1566. Gray's Inn was famous for its masks and revels, and on July the 7th, 1887, in honour of Queen Victoria's Jubilee, the benches of Gray's Inn presented in the hall, to a distinguished audience, the Mask of Flowers, which had been performed before James I on Twelfth Night, 264 years before. Gray's Inn had a brilliant role of members in the 16th and 17th centuries, but it is Bacon's spirit that seems to haunt the whole place. He helped the students in preparing their revels, probably wrote a mask or masks, and planted trees in the gardens, the arrangement of which he is believed to have superintended. His name remains in Verulam buildings. Returning to Holborn, and walking a little to the west, we come to the impressive front of Staple Inn, the most remarkable street front of old houses still in existence in London. The origin of the place is unknown, and nothing satisfactory has been discovered respecting the meaning of the name or as to what it was before it came into the occupation of the Inn of Chancery. There is a tradition that it originally belonged to the merchants of the staple. It was purchased by the benches of Gray's Inn in 1529, and in Elizabeth's reign there were 154 students in term and 69 out of term. It was bought in 1884 by the Prudential Assurance Company for £68,000, and the Holborn front was restored and cleared from plaster covering the timber beams. There are now very few old street fronts of interest in London, one or two in the Strand, and some in the great roads out of London, but a few years ago there were many still remaining in the Whitechapel and Mile End roads, and in Bishopsgate Street without. In the latter street, number 169, there was, until lately, the remains of the mansion of Sir Paul Pindar, an eminent English merchant, who died in 1650, distinguished for his love of architecture and the magnificent sums he gave towards the restoration of old St. Paul's Cathedral. 
1617-1618, the house was occupied by the Venetian embassy. In its last days, it was used as a public house, with the sign of Sir Paul Pindar's head. When it was pulled down, the front was obtained for the South Kensington Museum, where it was re-erected. The London of Johnson and Hogarth was not a handsome city, but it was a social one, and we owe to these two men many vivid pictures of the life lived in it. They were both true Londoners, but they were not alone in their love for their city, for a marked feature in the character of the 18th century Londoner was his intense feeling that here only was life to be lived with true enjoyment. Much of the life was frivolous, and some of it worse than that. But among the respectable classes, the opportunities for social intercourse were greater than now, when large numbers of the workers live out of London, some in the north and some in the south, and it takes as long to get from Hampstead to Croydon as to travel a hundred miles into the country. During the 18th century, London continued to grow, but it became uglier every day. The original growth was along the course of the river, but near the middle of the century a little building was commenced to the north of Oxford Street, when Cavendish Square and the surrounding streets were laid out. Soon afterwards, the new road from the Angel at Islington to the Edgware Road, now renamed Pentonville, Euston and Marylebone Roads, was planned. The opening of this road greatly facilitated the locomotion of the town, but it was disliked by the dwellers in what was then thought to be the north of London, who had their view of the country cut off. When Queen Square was built in the reign of Queen Anne, it was left open to the north, as it has remained to this day, in order to enable the inhabitants to have a view of Hampstead and Highgate. The gardens of Bedford House, which stood on the north side of Bloomsbury Square, had an uninterrupted view of the country, and the Duke of Bedford strongly opposed in the House of Lords the bill for making the new road. On this opposition, Horace Walpole cynically remarked to Conway, March the 25th, 1756, quote, A new road through Paddington has been proposed to avoid the stones. The Duke of Bedford, who is never in town in summer, objects to the dust it will make behind Bedford House, and to some buildings proposed, though, if he was in town, he is too short-sighted to see the prospect. End quote. The gardens of Bedford House were famous for their beauty and for the trees which flourished there, the ancient stems of the light and graceful acacia being specially mentioned by Walpole. Behind Montague House, now the British Museum, was Capper's Farm, which extended to Tottenham Court Road. The old farmhouse still exists behind Messrs. Heel and Sons Shop, number 195 Tottenham Court Road. Near where University College in Gower Street now stands was a wild district known as the Field of Forty Footsteps, which had a bad repute as the scene of a sanguinary duel about the time of the Monmouth Rebellion between two brothers who were both killed. No grass would grow over the footsteps trodden by the duelists, which were said to be recognisable until the year 1800 when the ground was built over. A little further east, where Cromer Street now stands, was a wayside inn named The Boot, which is made by Dickens in his Barnaby Rudge, the meeting place of the Gordon Rioters of 1780. The site of this inn is still occupied by a public house with the same sign. Even after these fields were built upon, the air continued so good that the gardens round about produced excellent fruit. When Lord Eldon lived at No. 42 Gower Street at the beginning of the 19th century, his peaches and vegetables were famous. 
nectarines were grown at 6 Upper Gower Street in 1800, and grapes were also successfully cultivated there. The district north of the new road is of a clayey soil and without a sufficient water supply, so that the ground remained unbuilt upon until, at the beginning of the 19th century, several new water companies came into existence and the building operations were commenced. Since that time the suburbs have continued to increase, and a great start was given to the increased growth of the town after the holding of the Great Exhibition of 1841. Before the middle of the 19th century, the growth of London had been continually increasing, but it was not until after 1851 that the abnormal growth set in. The commissioners of the Exhibition of 1851 bought a large property at Brompton and the district of South Kensington sprang into existence. The glass and iron forming the exhibition buildings were transferred to Sydenham and the Crystal Palace was erected there. Soon, this rural district, where gypsies once told fortunes, was covered with houses. This was the beginning of the onward march of bricks and mortar, which is going on still so rapidly that on all sides we have to travel by rail for miles before we get out of the labyrinth of buildings. When we see on all sides of us modern buildings where interesting old buildings once stood, we are apt to jump to the conclusion that all signs and relics of medieval London have passed away. But this is not so, for there is still much to see in out-of-the-way places if we go about the search with intelligence. From what we see, we may reconstruct much of the old topography in our mind's eye. The first thing to do is to follow the course of the wall, and mark out the position of the gates. This can easily be done by studying an old map. Some remains of the wall are still to be seen. Many most interesting remains of Roman London will be found in the Guildhall Museum. There are few remains left of the Saxon period, but some bits are to be seen at Westminster. Of Norman buildings we have portions of the tower, of Great St. Bartholomew's Church, the Round of the Temple Church, and the Crypt of Bow Church, Cheapside. Of later ages there are a few relics of the religious houses which have already been referred to. All the churches which escaped the ravages of the Great Fire have their points of interest. Lambeth Palace, although much of it comparatively modern, has a most venerable appearance and is certainly one of the most important relics of past ages that the present London has to boast. Westminster Hall, Abbey, Church and School are of transcendent interest, and some relics of the old Abbey buildings still exist in connection with the school. Of secular buildings there are Crosby Hall, Middle Temple, Gray's Inn Hall and some others. It is impossible to print a detailed list of all the places that should be visited, but these few notes will give some slight indication of what little is left of medieval London. End of chapter 12 End of section 24 End of the Story of London by Henry B. Wheatley